0: Four games. It takes a very steady hand. Conventions. Toys. Star Trek action figures also sold separately. Comics. My spidey senses tingling. Collectibles. Sold $325. Books. I'm a best-selling author. RPGs. Where are the Cheetos! Video games. Grab and fields. <laughs> music. Anime. I'm the hero. This. Is the G2V podcast?
1: Well, hi everybody, and welcome back to the G2V podcast. This is the next in our line of Halloween-themed episodes for the month of October. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg, and I'm joined as always by
2: Scott Woodard.
1: Today we also have a special guest. Last time we focused on the films of John Carpenter. This time around, we're reaching even further back. We're going to look at some of the movies that have meant so much to us in terms of how we really grew into becoming such fans of horror, and that's the Universal Horror Films. I am Dracula. And what better way to celebrate those than to be joined by someone who has spent a great deal of time not only enjoying them as well, but writing about them. We have with us the author of a two-volume set that took a look at the entire history of classic horror movies from 1920 to 1951. The books were titled Silver Scream. The first volume covered classic horror movies from 1920 to 1941, while the second volume went all the way up to 1951. His name is Stephen Warren Hill, and welcome, Steve, to the show.
2: Hello, thank you. Now, We've wanted to get you on for <laughs> that's a while, right.
1: Steve. <laughs> Actually, the first thing I wanted to throw out there, just to start with, was... You wrote these two books all about an era that we really want to delve into, much more than just the Universal movies, too. You went into Mm -hmm. a lot of other films, including some that are kind of fun in the books, really, because they're movies, some of which traditional uh, uh, wisdom might not necessarily say qualify. And you argued strongly for that. But you also picked a very definitive cutoff point, and I figured a good place to start in a way is kind of at the end. Why is it that 1951 is your ending point? Well,
3: obviously, I needed to find a cutoff point. Um, And why 1951, when specifically the movie that I chose was The Thing from Another World? um, Why that? Because horror movies really, really died out in the late 1940s. Um, Once we got past World War II, horror movies pretty much disappeared, um, there were just a few here and there, but, um, we didn't see too many of those. Um, 1950s, we started ch- sort of changing over from horror to science fiction. We had mm-hmm. more technological fears, uh, than, than psychological fears or, sure. uh, supernatural, uh, entertainment fears. Um, and we were turning more into the, um, uh, 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 altered-by-science-type storylines rather than created-by-science-type storylines. Well, a little bit of both, but certainly turning the page from horror to science fiction. And The Thing from Another World is a perfect blend of both horror Mm -hmm. and science fiction. So that was a good... Ending point, mm-hmm. and from once I selected that as as the last film to be covered, I sort of just filled in the gaps. I knew what movie was going to be first, which was Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and I knew what movie was going to be my last. So then I just picked uh, eighty movies to cover in the two books between those points.
1: And of course, many of the movies, like I said, they're, they span all different studios all through those years. But we're specifically going to focus on universal horror, which I think all three of us, it certainly looms large in our childhood, I think, watching these movies and probably discovering them in similar ways technologically. This is the pre-videotape, pre-DVD era. And I would imagine in your books, too, the universal horror movies are kind of a really strong spine to follow through that whole era, like you said, all the way up to the end of World War II, which is pretty much exactly when that classic universal cycle ends. Mm Mm-hmm. To the year, practically, until you include a a few other things, including the and Costello movie, but we'll get to that. (laughs) Um, But maybe you could talk a little bit about what is it that defines this universal horror genre that we're all so familiar with. We certainly know all the monsters. We remember Boris Karloff's Frankenstein monster and Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman, Bela Lugosi's Dracula, and The Mummy, although mummy doesn't have as many fans i don 't know why that is, but but <laughs> what what is it that makes universal horror stand out so specifically for you anyway as something that maintains such a power over people decades and decades after they had already been out
3: Well, I think part of it is um, that they were maintaining to a certain extent, their own continuity between the films. Mm. And I, I think, you know, once, it, you, once you see one, and you know that the next one sort of leads on from the first one that you saw, you're going to want to see the one that comes after that. And that really didn't happen with uh, other studios. So mm. Universal had that sort of in their pocket over the other studios with... with uh, you know, they had the properties. There's no denying that. They had the character properties that really stood out. Um, and the other studios, well, you know, they came up with what they could. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> how are you going to compete with Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy? You just, you can come up with a vampire character, but is Armand Tesla going to be. <laughs> 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 as memorable as Dracula, no even if Bella Lagosi is playing him,
1: <laughs> and not only is it the actors, but certainly one of the things too that always seems to stick with me is that it's a distinctive and for many people certainly that grew up with it, a definitive design for all of these creatures, yeah. which i which I mm. presume we could pretty much credit to Jack Pierce. Yes, and all the work that was done makeup wise in making these so definitive that for decades afterward, people were trying to find ways to riff on those designs while not treading completely on them because certainly in the case of Frankenstein's monster there's I think even a kid today would probably picture that monster like Boris Karloff and not even realize that's what it is,
3: yeah, well, I'm sure of it i mean you you've got you picture Frankenstein with neck bolts, a flat top and Scars, and green skin, even though we didn't know it was green skin. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the iconic look comes from these movies. It comes from Jack Pierce, mainly. So it, it's another just uh, example of how the Universal movies endure much more so than the other studios' movies.
2: It's funny, because uh, you mentioned something earlier, Arnold, and actually, Steve, you carried this over. Uh, the whole concept of them doing series of films. Uh, and it's funny when you hear people nowadays always rant about, oh, it's more sequels, Mm sequels, sequels, but heck, that was, that was sort of, that was the pattern yeah, back yeah. then, wasn't it? I mean, it seemed like those movies, they, they, they would launch, and then inevitably you were going to get at least two or three more yeah. in some I'd, cases. I'd
1: even kind of compare it to how successful the Marvel movies have been, the Marvel Universe movies of recent years, because they too have done the same thing the Universal Horror movies did, which is it sort of builds a little universe, a reality that you want to keep revisiting. You yeah. want to see those characters again. And and that's another thing also that speaks to something that I know Scott and I have talked about in the past, a little bit at least, and maybe you could uh, weigh on this too, is that very often for me, I never necessarily gravitated to these movies because I wanted to be scared or that I found them scary. I was fascinated, though, by the characters and wanted to know their stories and loved following the stories of these characters every time they came back. But it wasn't necessarily about cringing from the Wolfman. It was about, what's Larry Talbot going to go through this time? Yeah. And that's yeah. why I kept watching.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that they that they uh, had in their favor of Universal is not just the design of the characters, but the the, the production design of the films themselves. Because they, because they were working with... Pretty much the same team of people every single time these guys had had it down i mean guys and gals because you know we had um, uh, custom designer i can 't think of her name now uh vera uh it's it's escaping my memory right now, but um these people were always doing the same job, and it was probably a couple of weeks. And they would, you know, they would move on to the next thing and they would reuse props and they would redesign sets. But you've always had a certain amount of continuity coming just from the set designs and, mm. and the, the cinematography. Things that you wouldn't, like, notice other than subconsciously necessarily.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, you look at how many times those uh, town squares yeah. were used at the Universal yep. Backlot and you see them show up in so many exactly. films.
1: And of course the building on previous film work that Val Luton or whatever else you want to point to that lent so much power to the simple development of the use of shadow. I mean the whole German expressionism kind of thing is, and uh-huh. and that combined with the design of sets where you get to know the inside of those castles. You can, even if everything doesn't quite look exactly the same or things, the layout of, Frankenstein's Castle, for instance. I think, what, is it different in every single movie? Yeah. Even yeah. though it's supposed to be the yes. same place. But that's all right. You go with it anyway. It's Viseria. It's, Viseria, it's what it, I don't
3: think. Right, it's, yes.
1: You know, <laughs> but it's supposed to be the same place. And you f- you get a vibe from that. And it's the lighting. It's the shadow. It's the same townspeople. It's a lot of, of a repertory company also.
0: Yeah, yeah. With a
1: lot of recurring character oh, actors. Great, As great, you great, point great. out in the books, a lot of recurring character actors playing different roles. But besides the people who are returning in the main roles, a lot of familiar faces throughout Mm -hmm. the whole series.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You see some of the people and you go, where did I see him before? Oh yeah. He was (laughs) little Maria's father carrying, you know, after the Frankenstein monster threw her in the lake her, Maria's father found her, and then there's that memorable scene of him carrying her limp body into the into the town square. Sure. And um, we see him again in other movies later.
1: He got over it. He
2: moved on. I I had a question that carries on from uh, discussing the the production design and the, and the recurring crews and and everything. One thing I've always wondered about and Steve obviously you're the person to go to for this but uh, the budgets on some of these films and it seems like certainly in the case of say Dracula or the first Frankenstein uh it seems like those budgets were fairly small is that true well they were um
3: i think the peak i would have to i would have to look it up to be sure but i think the peak came with son of frankenstein and a lot of son of frankenstein's budget is apparent on the screen the yes. sets are really mm-hmm. incredibly impressive um and the even the special effects and the costumes and everything are really really awesome and i i think that that's probably well not not counting movies like the original lon Chaney phantom of the opera i won't you know ignore that (laughs) but once they get into the successful uh run where they started with dracula and frankenstein it's true that they started out with a relatively small budget um and again i say as it it peaked with uh, son of frankenstein i think and then at every movie after that had a smaller diminishing budget as they went. Um, <laughs> and that shows also, you can especially notice it in the Frankenstein series because you're starting out with these incredible strict fadden sets mm-hmm. with the, all the electrical equipment and, you know, um, where the ceiling is 60 feet high and <laughs> this, this, all this amazing stuff. And you end up, um, with, let's say, Ghost of Frankenstein, I think, where the walls are just covered by drapes. <laughs> that's and, right. You know, <laughs> and it's, there's like one spinning wheel that's shooting off sparks. and Yeah, oh, that's yeah it's it's too bad. But um, they were churning these movies out, and you know they were always making money, but they would make a little bit more money if they spent a little bit less up front, and they knew
2: that. I mean was there a noticeable drop in the box office as the series went Well
3: uh yes there was but um that probably had more to do with world events and you know the the war mm. and and everything they they were very popular all the time but I do think that the uh the uh attendance was declining um over time and especially into the war. Even in, even in the war, they were still popular, but uh, I don't think you were going to see any of these movies in the list of box office top ten for the year.
0: This is G2V. For almost two decades... Midnight Syndicate has composed the soundtrack to your darkest nightmares. The imaginations of fans worldwide have been fueled by its gothic, horror, and fantasy symphonic albums. A staple of the haunted house and amusement park industry, for many, the music of Midnight Syndicate is the music of Halloween. Now, Midnight Syndicate will bring your nightmares to life in a spectacle of sight and sound from beyond the gray. Support Midnight Syndicate Live on Kickstarter.com today. That That the way Jenny Williams was killed? Yes. Find something? Animal tracks. Whoever is beaten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf beat you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Baylor. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next.
1: I was saying earlier, by the way, about how I was wondering where we all personally uh, experience these for the first time. And I know for me, we're talking about growing up in the 70s and pre-videotape, (laughs) pre-DVD, pre-everything, not pre-television, of course. And for me, it would be um, watching the local Saturday night creature feature kind of stuff, whether it was... My Washington, D.C. channel, which had uh, Creature Feature with Gordy Vall, Count Gordy Vall, who's still on the Internet today doing his show on on the web. (laughs) Or my local Baltimore channel, 45, which would have the ghost host, who was one of those guys that did everything at a local channel. He was the, the children's host in the daytime. He was the ghost host Saturday night. And I watched those religiously every weekend. And it was a question of one or the other. And I can't honestly remember, but I'm sure that my criteria would have been if the Wolfman or somebody shows up, I'm picking that over whatever's on the other channel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm sure there might have been a conflict if both of them had hit Universal on the same night. But <laughs> that's, that's what I remember the most is late night television and seeing these movies at a time that's probably one of the last generations that was going to encounter these on a regular basis on regular television.
3: Yeah, we had uh, Creature Features in Chicago. Um, I think it was on Saturday nights. Um, I'll, you know, I still remember very distinctly the how the theme music, the Creature Features theme music, made me feel, and that was um, it was Henry Mancini's theme from Experiment in Terror, which still I, I love listening to these days, it just brings back all those memories of watching Creature Features, and every time it would come on. I'm sure I must have known what the film would be, but I don't ever remember going, okay, tonight is Dracula. I, for some reason, my memory is, oh, I can't wait to see what they're going to show tonight. Hmm.
2: Uh, in my case, actually, I would watch all these movies Saturday mornings. Uh, well, actually, it was Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings. They We did, really didn't have a, a late night well, you're, uh, you're just. I know, it's very strange. <laughs> So when I no when I was very young, it was I think it was called uh, Chiller uh-huh. Theater, and I, and I just re, I'll never forget the image. And it, I, we didn't have a host or anything like that, but it was just sort of this silhouette of a uh, of a man, and it just said Chiller Theater, really lame, and a little sting of music. And uh, I would see the films there, and then later on, uh, we had our when we first started to get our the UHF channels, and we had WUHF in our in my hometown of Rochester, New York. And we would then get creature features, which I think ran. I think it was maybe noon or right right around noon, <laughs> one o'clock in the afternoon on Saturdays. Um, and that title sequence is still online as well, like just like a your Ghost Host stuff. Oh and all yeah. That. And by the way, Ghost Host is really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched some of those introduction introductions, and they're <laughs> really <laughs> eerie. And
1: <laughs> yeah, you can go. We'll we'll do show links for this. We will definitely. Oh, we'll definitely share with you uh, bits of all of our childhood experiences these movies because the beautiful part is how much of this is now on YouTube that we visit mm-hmm. and uh, we'll do that but yeah having introduced Scott to the ghost host uh, <laughs> ruined for life now I think
3: um. <laughs> hey Scott I've got some uh, budget numbers for you just really quick um, Dracula which was um, it was being shot in 1930 uh, the budget was three hundred and forty one thousand dollars. Um it went slightly over budget at three hundred and fifty five thousand. The budget for Son of Frankenstein, which was nineteen thirty-nine, started out budgeted at two hundred and fifty thousand, um and the director managed to get it the budget bumped up to three hundred thousand. Um in comparison uh, well, actually, before I go on, the budget for *Son of Frankenstein* grew before they finished to four hundred and twenty thousand. Wow! And That's in so comparison, cool. one year later, *The Mummy's Hand* the budget was eighty thousand.
2: Wow! Holy what crap! A- <laughs> and they only
3: they only went four thousand over budget, so eighty four thousand at the end.
1: Well, they only needed gauze. I mean, that was what felt. <laughs> lots more gauze. <laughs> Go to the hospital and get another role. But, but again, that, that, you know, those, those there, there were, actually.
3: I, I think there were some wartime restrictions um, placed on the movie studios. And that could be, I, I, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. I'd have to verify my facts. But the studios were, were uh, placed under um, restrictions to how much they could spend mm-hmm. uh, during wartime. Uh, and I think that was probably in place even before America s- joined the war, you know, mm-hmm. so that would have affected the mummy's hand and may not have affected Son of Frankenstein.
1: Well, one of, that actually kind of brings me to something I was kind of joking about a little bit, and it is something that's like a regular joke, but I also mean it kind of seriously, which is that. It never seems like the mummy as a character or as a creature ever gets the love in this cycle or any other as the other characters. And I'll be perfectly honest. I never cared about the mummy movies. I I watched all of these movies, sought out everything, wanted to follow the entire track. Of course, it's interesting that when they brought everybody together for the final films and really united everything, they didn't include the mummy. Yeah, uh, It always felt mm-hmm. like it was an afterthought or something off to the side. Is there anything you've ever encountered about that? First of all, do you like them? And second of all, why is it that the mummy never seems to have the same stature as some of these other characters? Why it seems to exist in this other like, side reality there? <laughs>
3: I, I do love the mummy movies and um if I if I were to choose between uh Dracula Frankenstein and the Mummy, the the three original films, to watch one of them, I would pick the mummy probably every time. Okay. Um Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I, I I don't I can't explain it. It's just one of my favorites. Uh I just love the way it looks and feels. Um And I do like the the um, the Karis films from the '40s, also Uh, not as much, but they're entertaining. I think the one of the problems with the Mummy character is that they really felt obligated to tie it to Egyptian mythology, when you know that really wasn't necessary. They could have done whatever they wanted with it, but. It restricted what they felt they could get away with uh, realistically or, you know, mm. unrealistically with the movies. And I think trying to fit that into the, you know, the, the timelines of the different monsters series, they dovetailed mm. with each other. And, uh, you know, House of Dracula features the Wolfman, it's, you know, things like that. So we had a lot of crossing over, but like you said, the mummy didn't show up in any of the movies and i think that's one of the reasons why it was just they they couldn't shoehorn egyptian stuff into what was going on in their european their pseudo european setting
1: Hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a good point actually i never thought about that it's almost like the mummy is more or less as a concept geographically locked Isn't there, isn't one of them in, in Louisiana? Yes. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, you know, once they established the, the Karas movies, um, starting in Egypt. He goes traveling. He does. He (laughs) follows, he follows the character, the survivors of the first film back to America. (laughs) And that's nice. So one, (laughs) Because he loves them, no. so yeah. So once he's in America, they they pretty much keep him in America, and then they send these Egyptian madmen uh-huh. over to America to uh, control the monster for a while.
1: It is interesting how that's happened. It always seems to be one of those characters. That's another thing. That often comes up too is people talking about zombie movies and how the mummy doesn't get any love there either because it technically is one,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: yet nobody ever counts mm-hmm. it as one. It's yeah, the monster uh... that can't win no matter what <laughs> series it goes to.
2: No, I think that exotic origins and exotic location thing makes a lot of yeah. sense from, I mean, from my childhood perspective. It was, you know, I we were in Northern Europe, Europe, Northern European storylines. And, and all of a sudden there's this guy in deserts and yeah. pyramids. And it's really yeah. hard to. And yet, like you said, there's an attempt to make these all mesh yeah. together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's. Difficult to believe it
3: works very well with sticking Dracula with Frankenstein and having the Wolfman just down the road. That you can accept that easily, but (laughs) you know, the mummy is just going to happen to find Viseria just on his wanderings. I don't (laughs) know.
1: Well, it's interesting. You also said about how they felt restricted, that they actually tried to remain in some weird way faithful to a certain kind of tradition. Or origin, and like you said, all these other characters, they all have either literary or folklore origins mm-hmm. that they could easily pick and choose what they wanted. And in some cases, of course, my favorite, if it's not obvious by now, by mentioning him a few times, my favorite is definitely the Wolfman. And to me, the whole track that follows him, I will watch anything with him in it. I also love the fact that out of all of the creatures, he gets a happy ending in the final all-in film in House of Dracula. So I feel mm-hmm. like his arc is a fascinating one because it's a, a monster that becomes a hero. And in essence, he's always a tragic sort of Shakespearean kind of hero character. Mm-hmm. But the thing mm-hmm. is, they invented a lot of that. I mean, folklore on werewolves is all over the map in terms of the rules. And, of course, most famously, Siabmak's whole thing of writing that um, poem even a Man is Pure in Heart, is the yeah. kind of thing you still find in source material today as ancient poem or old folklore about that. <laughs> yeah. And he wrote that. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. it's something they invented, and it, it was convincing enough to people.
3: Yeah, quite you know, along the same lines as uh, inventing the iconic look of these monsters, the Universal Films, the writers of them, invented a lot of the, the folklore and the rules that so many other stories followed for years to come.
1: That's right. I never really thought about that actually too, is that even to this day you have people attempting completely new versions of these characters or even just not even the characters, but the concept, a werewolf, mm-hmm. a man-made monster, a vampire. And yet so much of it really, if you track it back, will often go back to rules or ideas that only began with the universal films yep. Yep. and never really started right. yep. with any actual folklore.
3: It's. But, I love the scene in An American Werewolf in London where David <laughs> Naughton is actually saying, "In the Wolf Man in 1941, Lon yeah. Chaney can't be killed by anybody but Claude Rains." You know, it's it's like <laughs> yeah, exactly
1: they're, they're, <laughs> yes. And yeah, there are a couple times that we, I just watched that one again. It's just that's a great example. That movie is just a wash, and well, the Universal movies must be right. So. <laughs>
2: Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, it's got to be how it works. I mean, even down to the slaughtered lamb. You know, it has that sort of old school universal right, quality right. to it. And then I think uh, there's a
1: throwaway line about something like, "Shouldn't the bullet be be silver?" And Jack says, "Oh, get serious, yeah. will you?" <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> this is G two V. This is the story you've heard about talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that!
2: You know, what's funny is that, uh, you know, Steve, said, you said you would love, you would preferably re, uh, revisit a, mm-hmm. uh, The Mummy. And Arnold, you just said you love The sure. Wolfman. And I'm a Frankenstein nut. So how strange well, is my that? favorite
1: movie of all of them, uh, maybe we should all do that. I don't know if The Mummy is absolutely your favorite, but you can say. But I I know my all-time favorite, the one movie I've seen more than any other and will continue to watch over and over again is Frankenstein meets The Wolfman. I mm-hmm. love that one. To yes. me, it's the it's it, obviously it's starting to draw things together. It's the one that really begins the the slow drawing together of threads. But there's something about that one that, again, like we've talked about in other shows, it's hard sometimes to sum up. Steve even just said with the mummy, it's sometimes hard to figure out exactly why it is. But it's not even the original Wolfman as much as Frankenstein meets the Wolfman that's my favorite and that defines Larry Talbot for me. And yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. Is just. Mm-hmm amazing and we were joking about this off mic but to me one of the key moments in that movie is when they're at the festival and the guy's singing the whole song about life is short and death is long and you just have lon cheney doing this slow burn of <laughs> absolute his- building hysteria and anger and fear about the eternity stretching before him and he's fantastic i just love that movie and of mm-hmm. course it's also as anybody knows it's a deeply savaged film which we may never, ever get in any uh, sensible way because Bela Lugosi, after years of not wanting to and famously turning it down, plays the monster in that one, had originally played him speaking, and all of his lines had been removed. And as a result, again, like we were just saying about the rules... Much of people's perceptions of the Frankenstein monster walking stiffly with his hands in front of him is entirely because he's supposed to be blind in blind. that film.
3: Yeah.
1: And the dialogue would have made that more clear following from Ghost of Frankenstein. All of that was dumped because they thought, what was it? They thought his accent sounded like it didn't work. Was yeah. that what it was? Yeah. And so you get a version of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, really, that is not at all the version they originally intended to make. And we'll never see that, probably, unless right. by some wow. miracle... Someone finds footage that contains the dialogue, which seems less and less likely as the years go on. Mm-hmm. But it's still my all-time favorite. I love that
3: one. Wow, nice. Yeah, it's a fun one. Steve, um, what would
1: you call your favorite? Well, my, uh, f-
3: as far as Universal films is concerned, my favorite is The Mummy. Um, I Again, I don't know. I know it's got the same plot as Dracula, and I do lo- love Dracula, but um, I... I'm a bigger Boris Karloff fan than a Bella Lugosi fan there.
1: Uh- <laughs> that's fine. You got to own it. That's totally
3: and um, I think the leading lady in the mummy is more attractive than the leading ladies in Dracula also. So there's that. Um, and then there's Edward Van Sloan and both of them doing the exact same thing. So you know, that's a wash. <laughs> um, but actually, as I, as I look in the back of the Silver Screen book where we put uh, all the films in, in the order in which I rated them, The Mummy is actually tied with another Universal film, The Old Dark House.
1: Ah, okay. Which,
3: of course, isn't really a monster movie. It's an Old Dark House movie, but, <laughs> but still. Um, and so, but the next monster movie down the list is The Wolfman. So okay. those are mine.
2: Uh, mine has always been Bride of Frankenstein. Um, I just adore that movie. I love the, I love mm-hmm. the humor in it. And, you know, I'm obviously a lot of people are drawn to that. And of course I love the design, but I could watch that movie daily and find myself as entertained the first, uh, each time as I was mm-hmm. the first time. And it just so happens in a week, <laughs> I'm going to see it on the big screen. I hate you. <laughs> 35 millimeter print, yeah. ladies and gentlemen.
1: That is one of the amazing things. I mean, obviously that movie it's kind of hard to talk about in a way because that movie has gotten so much recognition and acclaim over the years as being like the jewel in the crown in many respects that it's almost hard to talk about because like, well, obviously Bride of Frankenstein is brilliant, but there are so many reasons why it stands out. I don't pick it as a favorite, but it's, the first thing I would have said is what you just said which is it almost takes you mm-hmm. by surprise I think with the incredible sense of humor that it has.
2: A lot of the, it is my own. Yes, <laughs> well
1: I mean a lot of it comes down to Ernest Ascher and and mm-hmm. just the whole yeah. tone of the film is not at all what you're expecting after the first Frankenstein <laughs> yeah. and it's brilliant. So yeah I mean I absolutely there's no question of respecting that. I guess if I had to pick in terms of Frankenstein though I I would Probably head closer to *Son of Frankenstein* as well for a lot of the reasons Steve mentioned earlier. It's
2: no, that's a, I mean, yeah. it is a great film.
1: I love There's something about Boris Karloff's monster in the big furry vest just like really,
2: yeah, oh I love it.
1: It's just great. He looks like he really only needs a hug.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Basil but, working with the kid and it's just I don't know. I could never quite tell yeah. is oh, he yeah. comfortable or not. It just seems like he <laughs> he wants to yell cut so he can go somewhere else. <laughs> But I I love that.
2: The design is really. I do.
3: um, I'll, let me read a couple of lines from Silver Screen, the entry on Bride of Frankenstein, where I give a critical reaction to it. I say, why then, I explain how great the movie is, and then I say, why then do I rate Bride of Frankenstein lower than some of the other movies in the book? Perhaps it's overexposure. Perhaps it's a feeling that Bride of Frankenstein has been held too high at the expense of the others. These days, I'd rather watch Son of Frankenstein. There are times when I just can't take Una O'Connor's comic relief or just feel Made that the movie is nothing more than a mass of hidden meanings and subversiveness. It's not the subversiveness that bothers me, or even the broad comedy. It's the fact that it makes the actual continuation of the Frankenstein story incidental, like an afterthought.
0: Hmm. It's almost well, like yeah, James Whale, mean,
3: yeah. you know, he was making a movie for himself that just happened to be a Frankenstein sequel. And he made a great film, but that's a strike against it in my mind
1: well that's that's <laughs> you rolling. out of the show no.
0: <laughs> Scott so, cut everything
1: yeah. out that he said <laughs>
3: son of frankenstein (laughs) i would rather watch than bride of frankenstein
1: i could totally understand and and of course son of frankenstein always has that interesting vibe too which is that it's the one that most directly is the inspiration for young frankenstein
3: well that's true yeah
1: and if there's one movie that's just also fascinating it's something like mel brooks coming along doing one of the greatest comedies he ever did and yet again betraying a level of fandom that any one of us could recognize in the sense that (laughs) young Frankenstein remains faithful to the slightly soft, but (laughs) relatively good continuity of all the films by trying to fit within them. And there's nothing really in young Frankenstein that can't work with the rest of the movies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And yet it's also hysterically funny and it's just, it's a beautiful triumph of blending satire with also an homage to something that he clearly loved. Like so many of us love these movies. So it's just a great thing. It's an honorary universal horror movie. It has yeah. to You
3: have a thing to say about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, though, don't you?
1: <laughs> well, as I was saying, one of the things about some of these movies that I always loved is not so much about sitting down and getting scared, but following their stories. And for me, certainly the primary story I was following was Larry Talbot's story, what's going to happen to him. And and the tragedy of him trying to find a cure. And one of the things I always found absolutely fascinating was the fact that they actually gave one of their monsters a happy ending. And then in the house of Dracula, it's also something that I think really neatly fits into your conception in silver scream about the transition post-war from horror to science fiction, mm-hmm. because they're in 1945 at the end of the war with really what is ultimately the final film for all the main universal monsters All of the monsters are confronted by science. A scientist is going to solve the universal horror monsters. Yes. And yet he sort of succumbs to them. But he succeeds completely with Larry Talbot. And when you actually watch that movie, what's interesting, and and I try to keep this short, obviously, but one of the fascinating (laughs) things about The Wolfman, too, is if you actually look into the history of The Wolfman, as you well know, Steve, it was originally conceived as a psychological drama hmm and they never actually intended to make it a monster story and then it veered into no we actually want him to change because originally the film was going to be he only sees the wolfman in reflection mm-hmm. he's not really changing um and yet when you get to house of dracula one of the things the doctor tells him what is it dr neiman is that what it is i forget now um One of the things he says is, well, I think what you actually have is like a brain tumor. There's like – you have a brain injury and it has led you to believe so strongly in the fact that you've become a a werewolf that it actually allows you to physically change your body because you believe it. So in essence, the end of the series actually confirms the original idea that it's all in his mind. It's just all in his mind so much that it actually is making him change his hormonal levels and everything (laughs) (laughs) And he gives him brain surgery, and like a third of the way into that movie, he's cured. The rest of the film, he's Larry Talbot, and he's the romantic lead. That's the other thing. The monster suddenly becomes the romantic lead in the film, and is the guy standing at the end, like at the end of every movie, watching the place burn down, he's (laughs) the one with the girl at the end. Mm -hmm. Now here's the problem. Three years later, Abbott (laughs) and Costello comes out with their monster (laughs) mashup film, which takes these monsters completely seriously puts them in their proper context, but meshes them with Abbott and Costello. And there's Larry Talbot as the wolfman again.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'm sorry, but I just can't accept that <laughs> because three years ago he was fine and he had a girl and he was cured. And there's nothing in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein as far as I know that can't have taken place pre-1945. So I've always felt, well, the movie came out three years later, but you have to set it prior to house of Dracula. Because Ooh. I will not rob Larry Talbot of this happy ending.
2: <laughs> that was my yeah. mind blowing up. My head. Yeah,
1: it has to be. And it doesn't <laughs> conflict with anything else uh, Frankenstein, Monster, and Dracula-wise if you watch that either. You can mm-hmm. easily fit it
2: before a couple of the other last ones.
3: Well, that's I would support that. I support that.
2: <laughs> Fascinating. I was just thinking, um, uh, uh, not in any way related to that, but you were mentioning uh, House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein. And uh, this is a really, really strange little side journey. But when I was growing up, and we're going back to that, you know, how do we get introduced to these properties? And uh, In Niagara Falls, Canada, they actually had two walk-through horror attractions, and one was House of Frankenstein, and one was House uh. of Dracula. And I think to this... I, I know for a fact that when I the last time I was there, which, granted, was quite a few years ago, uh, House of Frankenstein was still in existence, having absolutely nothing to do with the movies and more or less nothing to do with universal horror at all. They were just, uh, you know, mm-hmm. walk through yeah. jump scare horror mazes. But, but uh, they did use the iconic imagery. They did have Frankenstein's mug and Dracula's face mm-hmm. on the outside. Uh, but uh, I think that always helped me believe that these things were ever-present you know, beyond mm. my TV and, screen. And
1: since we often try on the show to tie things back to the gaming world as well, um, Steve and I were talking about this off mic, was I I still own it. I still own my copy. But one of the things that I remember distinctly as a kid that I immediately gravitated to is this game that I now see and was looking it up was published in 1975 by Research Games. And it was a box game called Creature Features that was a completely shameless ripoff of the Monopoly game. <laughs> yeah. It was Monopoly, but it was evidently licensed and completely on the up and up because it had tons and tons of uh, universal photos in it. And and it's the wow. way I often remember many of those classic photos is from the Creature Features game and all the cards in the game and the board.
3: Yeah. Hmm.
1: And you had it too, Steve. You had that. Yeah,
3: I I still have mine too. And the the properties were the film titles. Um, I don't remember how you you know. I don't remember what the houses and the hotels effectively were. But... I know that
1: the game. I'm looking at it right now. That some of it was about. It was about needing to complete production on films mm-hmm. rather than owning mm-hmm. properties. And for instance, one of the cards that it shows you, it has Glenn Strange frankenstein monster Mm -hmm. and then uh for instance Mm. this card sample i'm looking at boardgamegeek.com by the way but uh one of these examples is king kong one million dollars stars needed to complete production king kong and fey ray fee paid to (laughs) owner by player landing on production and then it's no stars one star two stars each major award so they switched the idea of houses and hotels to
3: you're completing a film
1: production yeah Mm-hmm. And But it's got everything. It's no, got funny. King Kong. It's got tons of other stuff in it as well. It's been
3: but... many, many years since I've played that. But I used to see the game high up on a shelf in this uh, toy store in – I don't remember what mall it used to be. So every time we would go to this mall – we would pass the store, I would look, and I'd still see the game up there. And every time I wanted that game so bad and finally saved up enough money one year to actually go in and buy it.
1: It's <laughs> awesome, too. So I'm looking at it now, and I'd forgotten, actually, that although I always remember it, I always remember it as a universal game, uh, it also features Dr. Fibes, Godzilla, yeah. giant ants from them. Mm-hmm. hammer dracula oh, wow. christopher lee's on a card so it's a it's a weird mesh of a lot of things how did they how did they
3: get they may not have this? <laughs> well i guess it was a little <laughs> well, yeah,
2: maybe not. well you know that's another thing too is that uh you, the the amount of merchandising that there was uh and well obviously continues to this yeah. day that surrounds the universal horror films i think we all grew up with either aurora model oh, kits yeah. or <laughs> Uh, I mean, I remember having a, some kind of a color form oh, yeah. set, and most of the stuff in it was was very universal in, in the look. There were Frankenstein and Dracula. But, um, I mean, we were surrounded yep. by all that stuff. No wonder it's still around. No wonder it's so sure. iconic.
1: And in some sense, that is still going on. I mean, one thing is Universal, it seems also in recent years, they've gotten very aggressive again about uh, reestablishing that brand. A lot through DVD, Mm -hmm. Blu-ray, and other things, but you know they—they are very strong. There's also like, wasn't there a recently like a huge coffee table book, an official coffee table book came out of that, and it's it—it is not something that they let go of. It's it's certainly one of their greatest legacies. So
3: yeah, yeah. For a while, um, I want to say in the early '90s, probably. Um, there was a feeling uh, amongst horror fans that Universal was starting to neglect their properties. Um, and, I, you know, many of the movies had already come out by then on VHS. Um, and then we were in that long gap until we actually had DVDs, but um, they, they were not doing a lot of merchandising. Um, and part of that had to do with the internal wrangling and disputes over the uh, likenesses with the Legosi estate and the Karloff estate and the Cheney Has, estate. Has there
1: recently been something right now as we speak that was going on, like within the last year with the Cheneys, where they were trying to sue about uh, that they had continued to use Lon Cheney Jr.'s likeness beyond some agreement. I think oh. that, I think there was a recent lawsuit or one that's still going on regarding that. So yeah,
3: you could be right.
1: Something that continues to this day.
3: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. After a while, they did, you know, sort all that out, but... For example, they, uh, they were putting out action figures, really, really nicely sculpted action figures yeah. of all the iconic monsters. But they, wouldn't, they didn't come out with a Dracula because they hadn't yet settled arrangements with the Lugosi estate for Lugosi's likeness. So for a while, whenever Universal would put out um, anything that had a likeness of Dracula, it didn't look anything like Lugosi.
1: Mhm.
3: You know, it just looked like your standard vampire guy.
1: <laughs> and they didn't and they didn't use the Carradine Dracula?
3: Um no, but you know it's possible that they did in one or two cases, but um I uh, you know, I don't have a handle on all the merchandising that went on, but uh I've seen a lot of unidentifiable <laughs> Draculas. <laughs> and nobody wants that <laughs> shit. <laughs>
1: G to be.
0: For almost two decades, Midnight Syndicate has composed the soundtrack to your darkest nightmares. The imaginations of fans worldwide have been fueled by its gothic, horror, and fantasy symphonic albums. A staple of the haunted house and amusement park industry, for many, the music of Midnight Syndicate is the music of Halloween. Now, Midnight Syndicate will bring your nightmares to life in a spectacle of sight and sound. From beyond the gray. Support Midnight Syndicate Live on Kickstarter.com today. The Mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know you'll see, you'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. Ah! There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death.
1: <laughs> i always found the charity and stuff in the last couple movies to be one of the weirdest things it's like he's one of the great character actors in horror and anything and yet as dracula it never quite seemed to click for me he does have one great scene in one of my remember which one where he sort of compels her, the woman in the scene to play she's playing the piano and it suddenly goes into this really strange, discordant, creepy music. And he's telling her, that's the music from where I come from. And it's a fantastic scene. Mm-hmm. But he's just hes just not Dracula. I'm sorry. It's yeah. like, yeah. you know, he's not. He's <laughs> Although more so with, than
3: Lon Chaney Jr. in uh, well, Son that's, of Dracula. <laughs>
2: that's
1: yeah. And yet a lot of people like that movie a lot. The, well, uh, yeah, I do yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. I just watched Dracula's Daughter again for the first time in a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I had forgotten a lot of that's that. That's movie. also one that maybe, like, I I seem to remember a lot of people have high regard for it, but it's also not one that necessarily makes a list very easily. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's a very good movie, and, and one of those interesting examples of a movie that's a direct sequel supposedly yeah. picks up exactly at the same moment. <laughs> ben Helsing's in a lot of trouble for murder.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Isn't it Von Helsing in there? For oh, that? yeah,
3: you know, uh, I it, might remember
1: correctly. I it might be. might be right. And he's actually kind of underused in the movie. He really doesn't get to do anything except sit around and wait to get uh, sentenced for murder. And then occasionally <laughs> uh, uh, help the hero of the film with a, a bit of advice or two. But it's, it's very interesting. It's like all these different little side things. Are there any other movies actually, Steve, you could think of that would be ones... Suppose someone was delving into this, has heard some of the things we've talked about, maybe doesn't know... What are maybe some of the the odder corners like that? Something that maybe wouldn't come up on a top three or top five list that would be well worth somebody's time to check out?
3: Oh, Well, I can just uh, throw out some examples I guess. Um, one of my favorites is uh, The Invisible Ray, which mm-hmm. is um, kind of more of a science fiction movie. Um, it's got Boris Karloff and Bella Legosi together. Um, and it it ties in a lot with the fear of X rays at the time. It's <laughs> <They're laughs> pretty boring. scary to some people at the time. We're Invisible rays, you know?
1: at the shoe store. <laughs> exactly, until your bones. <laughs>
3: yeah. Um. It's it's kind of an offbeat film and it's skipped over because by a lot of people just because it doesn't have any of the iconic monsters. But it's it's entertaining and of course it's got the two great actors in it. So mm-hmm. I would give that one. And and then outside of the Universal films, I've always got to stress the Val Luton movies from RKO oh, well, in sure. the 40s. Sure. Um, And, you know, just thinking, my my two favorites of the Luton movies, Curse of the Cat People, is my number one favorite, but my number two is The Seventh Victim, um, which I would recommend to anybody. It's just such a great film, and there are things in The Seventh Victim that are echoed in later famous movies, like the shower scene in Psycho. There's a similar scene in The Seventh Victim, which was from the 40s. So it's... uh, fantastic movie and i recommend that one to anybody
2: okay well i'm gonna go on record and say i've never, I've never seen, seen it. it either so now
1: i'm definitely gonna seek it out <laughs> yeah most yeah, definitely that's all i need to know i will definitely seek that out
3: yeah we could do a whole show on the val luton movies, well,
1: <laughs> of course and the thing is like you even brought up i mean any one of these things and you even brought up Karloff and lugosi and of course just the notion of the two of them how towering they both are as icons, and all the fun of seeing them play off each other in so many movies—that's sort of a whole thread in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. And and so many of their uh, team ups are are films that are well worth checking out. Yeah. But
3: and the, I would have mentioned the Black Cat as one of them, but that one is pretty well known already. That's that's kind of why I would plump for Invisible Ray, mm-hmm. um, just sort of champion the lesser known ones.
2: Sure. Well, Arnold, you had mentioned something early on about how a, a lot of us go to these movies, not so much to be scared, but because we like, you know, the characters, we like the story, or we like the uh, production design, the music, whatever. Um, but, Steve, are there any of these that you actually do find genuinely creepy and eerie and would be great for Halloween viewing? Ooh, yes. Um, maybe not. And they don't necessarily have to right, be universal. Sure. Maybe
3: not from from start to finish. I don't know if there's any. But there are. Some movies that have just incredibly powerful and creepy scenes or multiple scenes in them. I don't know that I would say that anyone can sustain that kind of atmosphere from start to finish. But um, Seventh Victim, for example, is pretty creepy. and Like I mentioned, it has echoes in Psycho later. It also has very strong echoes to Rosemary's Baby which comes mm. later, because it's, wow. it's a coven of Satan worshippers um, behind this veneer of innocence. And it's um, and it has just a great, great ending that I'm not going to say a word about. Um, Island of Lost Souls, if you've
1: oh, seen of course. that movie. Yeah, of
3: the course, last of scene in that just sends chills down your spine.
1: Oh, I would definitely <laughs> concur on that, and and not only that, but if if for nothing other than Charles Lawton's performance alone, mm-hmm. it's worth mm-hmm. watching. It's one of the most gleeful, perverse villains in film history. I think yes. he's just amazing to watch. Oh yeah, yeah, and it is, and that one really is. It's creepy, and it's got some actual scary stuff going on in that.
3: Um, one of the other Val Luton movies that I would say it's got one of the scariest scenes I've ever seen in any movie is the leopard man there's a scene where uh, a girl is sent uh, from her home to go get some cornmeal I think and she has to cross under this bridge and over you know over hill and over dale um, (laughs) to go get the cornmeal and come back even though uh, the girl and her mother who sends her they both know that there's a killer leopard on the moose <laughs> somewhere.
1: Just um, avoid the killer leopard. And, yeah, we really need this cornmeal. We can't wait for the cornmeal any longer.
3: And, but um
1: wow, that's the, the, one, the
3: way yeah, the way the scene ends is mm. very chilling. Um, Well, there's a scene like that
1: that, well, I I don't know this one because I haven't seen this one either, but also that just reminds me of the scene in Cat People with the door.
3: Yes. Which I wouldn't
1: say more about if people want to seek that out too, but certainly (laughs) a master of scaring the hell out of you with little, very little. Absolutely,
3: and it's no coincidence that that a lot of the scary scenes that we might think of are coming from the Val Luton movies because that's, you know, he put Mm -hmm. a lot of thought and effort into creating those Specifically yeah. to scare the hell out of
1: you. Yeah. See, that's the thing with. I mean, I we all love the Universal horror movies. They're they're a huge part of my childhood. I would watch them over and over. But I can't honestly say that they're scary to me, or ever mm-hmm. were. It, mm-hmm. it was about the right. the mythology of them and the characters and and certainly in essence, really, if you think about it, I was talking about the Wolfman. Really, if you think about it, what's interesting is something that often comes up when you talk about a lot of superheroes in comics, too. Really, every character in the Universal Horror Pantheon is a tragic figure. They're all victims in one way or another. Mm -hmm. The monster doesn't want to be what he is. He's been made and doesn't understand how to behave and is misunderstood. The Wolfman is cursed. Dracula, in essence, although he's a predator...
2: Yeah. he's Well, the thing is, if you watch the
1: later movies, certainly the Carradine version of him, he seems to be at least temporarily seeking an answer. He doesn't want Mm -hmm. to be it anymore. So that may come later. But it's also the idea that, well, you know, he's considering the fact that he feels like this is a curse weighing on him. And then I don't know too much about the mummy, so maybe that doesn't work. (laughs) uh, Well,
3: for scary scenes, the mummy does have the scene where the mummy comes to life. That scene still packs a wallop.
1: Doesn't the guy start laughing hysterically? Yes. yes. Dracula's
3: daughter has that scene um, where... Well, it's very similar to the, the bit you mentioned earlier about the music that's playing that's being played and it turns all creepy if you just watched dracula's daughter recently you'll remember she's playing the organ and um uh her assistant whose name escapes me at the moment is (laughs) he's messing with her mind yes she's playing the music and it's affecting the music he's fantastic yeah yeah
1: and she is also she's definitely a tragic figure because she wants a cure.
3: Oh, definitely, She yes.
1: doesn't want to be that at all. She's looking for therapy. She's looking for an answer, and he keeps telling her. It's like, you can't deny what you are.
3: You can't escape, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> the thing about these movies is any one of these could be an entire show. Any one of these characters could certainly be an entire show. It's hard to talk about something as sprawling as this whole era of universal horror and really capture it in a single episode. But hopefully one of the things we kind of wanted to do was not only provide an opportunity to talk about why we love them so much, why so many of them retain their power and are still exciting and fun all these years later, but also provide some recommendations for people that are listening to the show, especially those of you that may never have delved into these movies before. Maybe you've never really looked into a lot of black and white cinema before, which is certainly very possible, or have just never really been interested in some of these monsters, and yet... Hopefully, we'll seek out a few of the things that we've talked about and discover just what it is about them that makes them so incredible and so compelling all these years later. And we wanted to just celebrate that a little bit as we're heading into the perfect time of year to reach them down from your shelf or find them at the video store. Oh, yeah, like you you can find a video store.
0: (laughs) What's what's a video store?
1: (laughs) Oh, go on Netflix or on the (laughs) Internet or that thing you kids do with that (laughs) online thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and find the MP4 of the movie that you want to see, <laughs> and uh, that that'll be fine too.
2: No, I mean, like you said, these, you know, these these are these are films that, despite their age, are just never going to go away. And their images, and their titles, and you know, just everything about them is is permanent. It's part of our psyche. It's part of our mm-hmm. our culture.
1: The very fact that it's so difficult for people to get away from the look, the rules the aspects of these characters unique to these movies just shows how indelible they really are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They've taken the place of a lot of the original mythology and folklore and literature that they came from. And this is these are these creatures now, possibly mm-hmm. forever. Well, I think that about wraps it up for another episode of the G2V podcast. As I said before, we could certainly keep talking about these things for a long time, but there's only so much time in one night. And one of the things we definitely wanted to do was say a very special thank you to Stephen Warren Hill, author of The Silver Screen Books, for joining us and providing his insight and expertise in talking about these amazing movies. We hope certainly people listening do seek them out, like we said. But thanks very much, Steve, for uh, helping us talk about them here on this
3: episode.
2: Thanks very much. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the G2V Podcast, part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. Visit our official website at g2vpodcast.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at g 2 And you can always email us directly at contact at g2vpodcast.com. This episode featured music from Midnight Syndicate and their classic horror film-inspired album, Monsters of Legend. Find out more at (laughs) MidnightSyndicate.com.
0: Why, he's mad. Look at his eyes. Why, the man's gone crazy.